My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people, and it's great to see you, all of you who are in the building, as well as those of you who are virtual with us. Happy Good Friday. We have a full weekend. This is just the beginning of it. Of course, Sunday morning is one of the bigger Sundays of our church calendar, and we are happy that we are doing three services, and they are all booked. That's a good thing. Feels like we're getting back to what normal should be like, and hopefully by the summer, we won't have to have any sign-ups anymore. I am, I am anticipating that the Holy Spirit is going to do something very special throughout, throughout the entire weekend, uh, not because we deserve it, but because we have put ourselves in a position to receive. Thank you all for fasting. Thank you for giving up food. We do this every year not so that we can somehow access God with asceticism. It's that we want to make sure that our hearts are fully focused on him by denying that which we need to get that which we cannot live without. And that is the presence of the Holy Spirit and understanding of who God is more, his purposes for our life and how he might use us best. Fasting is a catalyst to that. It is not a hunger strike saying, God, we aren't going to eat until you do. You do something. Doesn't have anything to do with that. It has everything to do with saying, Lord, we know what we cannot do. We need you and all of your strength to provide the ability for us to accomplish your will in the earth. And we realize that the natural things that you provide for us are not sufficient. And so we lay aside our food in order to gain what you want to give us, your strength and your power and your wisdom. Thank you for fasting. I'm very, very grateful. And I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit is going to do something as a result of your sacrifice. I also want to say I'm grateful for the team that put together this beautiful stage as well as the worship and song team. <clears throat> Just outstanding. There are very few places on the earth where I would rather be than when our worship and song hits the first beat. They are outstanding in what they do not just in their performance, but in their worship. I'm grateful. Tonight I'd like to talk to you about the seven last words of Christ. It is not a sermon I made up. It's a sermon of antiquity. In fact, probably being replicated all around the world here on this Good Friday. And so I don't have a focused passage. I will have seven of them because we find these seven words as a compilation throughout the book. Books of the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so I'm going to pray and then ask God to help us as we study. Father in heaven, give us your wisdom. Open our ears so we can hear what you have to say. And let our hearts be fully engaged in what you want to do tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. The first passage <clears throat> upon which I'd like, like to concentrate is found in Luke chapter 22, verses 33 and 34. Jesus says this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is the last passage I will read. You'll be able to follow along with what is online or on the screen behind me with the passages that come up. I will quote them, but not read them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What a statement. 
Jesus had already bypassed the idea of whether he needed to forgive because he already had. When people offend us, that's the first thing we have to confront. Are we willing to let them go for what they have done to us? Are we willing to say, I no longer hold you accountable to pay me back for how you treated me? It's hard for us to overcome that. It's more than a speed bump for most of us. It's a major barrier that stops us in our Christianity. Why? We may feel like it doesn't stop us because we don't think it's that big of a deal. We are so used to the idea of not forgiving that it's really Herculean, Samsonic, if you will, if somebody actually forgives somebody for doing some heinous thing to them. Somebody thinks that's amazing when we hear of people committing horrible crimes against others' loved ones. And then those loved ones say, I forgive them. Everybody says, what? Why? It's like it's mammoth in its orientation. All of us feel like we have done something huge. When we even approach the idea of thinking about forgiving someone who has hurt us. Yet on two levels, we need to understand the magnanimity of what Jesus did in this moment. One is that as you are thinking about the people that you might need to forgive and have not yet, remember, they're thinking about you. There is not one of us who has been offended that hasn't offended and boy, do we not want it when we've blown it. We can't believe that people won't understand. I didn't, I, I, I didn't mean it. Well, sort of, but I mean, I'm sorry. I said I was sorry. Can't you get over it? It's been six months. We, we are incredulous with people's intolerance of us when we have said we are sorry. And yet, we don't extend the same grace to others. Jesus talked about forgiveness to such a degree that the disciples began to think, okay, this, this is a foundation stone in my life, so I better up my game a little. The Pharisees had, had a rule that if a person, because people were really good at sinning, is, is that news to you? The, the, the Pharisees had a rule that they had employed in their religious behavior said, if a person sins against you once, you need to forgive him. In fact, if he sins against you three times a day, you need to forgive him. And if somebody had sinned against someone three times a day, you know, they, you wondered how did that person stay around to the third? And so they thought they were really doing something huge. Uh, and, 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 <laughs> Peter, with, with his thought about forgiveness, he realizes Jesus is always one-upping the Pharisees because their religion is just a little shallow. So Peter comes to him and says, Jesus, I want you to know something. If my brother sins against me seven times in a day, I'm going to forgive him. Now Peter's looking for a pat on the back. He's looking for a stroke, an affirmation moment, and he's thinking, I have upped my game. I am better than the Pharisee. Surely he's going to push me to the front of the line for all these jokers with whom I'm walking. I'm going to be the leader of all of them because I have raised my standard so high that nobody in my community even thinks about doing it like this. And then Jesus says, well, good on you, Pete, but I tell you, if, if your neighbor sins against you 70 times, seven, you need to forgive him. And I imagine Peter sitting there thinking, Lord, come on now. 
I mean, I've done better than everybody. Jesus had a big deal with this idea of forgiveness. It was foundational to somebody's well-being spiritually. So much so that he mentions in, in, in Luke 18 that you've got to make sure that your life is in line with the forgiveness that God has given you when you talk about needing to forgive others. He gives a story about a man who had squandered all of his master's wealth. Well, at least the wealth that he had been given to steward. And we think it's somewhere in the neighborhood if we were to calculate the value then to the value now of $10 billion, that's Ilian with a B. And, and how do you squander that? I mean, the master went on a long journey. He came back, said, time to settle up. And the guy said, I lost the money. Oh, you, you might lose a million. You might lose 10 million, but nobody loses 10 billion. The master said, there's something wrong with you. So we're going to take you, put you in jail, and put all your family in jail, and you'll work it off until you can pay it back. Now, it's a debt beyond his ability to repay. The, the man begs, 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 and says, Master, please, please, Master, have mercy on me. And surprisingly, the Master has mercy on him. He says, okay, I'll let you go. Ten billion? I mean, most of us would be really happy if we got a notice from the, from the bank that says your loan is paid off. And nobody in here has a mortgage of $10 billion. $10 billion. $10 billion. This man walks out thinking, oh, my life has, oh, my family's life has been spent. Oh, wow. And then he goes and finds a guy who owes him 50 bucks. And he begins to choke him, saying, pay me. He says, have mercy on me. I'll pay you when I get it. Pay me now. Chokes him. The master sent some folk to follow after the guy because anybody who says I lost 10 billion buried it someplace. <laughs> it's someplace. It's not lost. And so he sends somebody after the guy to follow him and say, just watch out what he's doing. Sees it, comes back and reports to the master. The master said, you know that joker you, you forgave? He went out and choked a guy for 50 bucks. Said, bring him back. You wicked and lazy slave. You horrible human being. Don't you realize what I did for you? And you did not return the favor for someone who owed you so little? We're going back to the original punishment. Bye. Jesus was teaching on forgiveness here. How great is your debt? Incalculable. Incalculable. And God has forgiven us. And Jesus is part and parcel with that, meaning he could have, he could have, if anybody had the right to say, God, get him, it would have been him. I have done all right, nothing wrong. And these people didn't receive me. They didn't like me. They said I was things I was not. They lied on me. They made up ideas about what I was doing when I wasn't. They created all this narrative around me that made me seem guilty to everybody. Get them. And if he had said that, the father would have done it. Instead, we don't even hear Jesus say anything about the need for him to forgive. He'd already done that. What a, what a man. What a man. 
But he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, we've got a whole lot of history of Hebrews, good, godly men throughout the Old Testament, talking to God about their enemies. The Psalms are replete. And most of the time, you don't hear the psalmist ever saying, Lord, forgive them. These are called imprecatory prayers. It's God, get them. I realize vengeance is yours and I'm not supposed to go after them, but you can get them. I let them go. You can get them, though. And it's not that their prayers are wrong. It's just that they don't have the highest right in mind. These people deserve judgment who were persecuting the righteous. They deserved it. But Jesus goes at a different level. Anybody out there that you have forgiven that uh, you kind of reserve in the back of your mind, Lord, I'll I, I let them go now, but if you want to teach them a lesson, I ain't mad. Hmm. And you may not have ever said that, but you evidence it that when something bad does happen to them, you don't weep. There's nothing on the inside of you that breaks and says, oh, no. Something on the inside of us that goes, mm-hmm. Mm, teach you to mess with me. One of God's child. Jesus ups it and says, Daddy, don't get them. I know you're mad at them because of what they're doing to me. Let them go, please. Forgive them. Wow. Father, forgive them because they don't have a clue. I am so grateful. My God has forgiven me. The second statement that Jesus makes in the first three are all about the relationship between people on the planet that he has. The, the last four are about his relationship with God. The second one, he's at the cross, and he's actually thinking about other people. So, so he's already thought about us and asking the Father to forgive. But now he says to his mama, woman, behold your son, talking about John, the beloved. And, and then he says to John, the beloved, behold your mother. Now Jesus was a really good son, best son ever. We see that Joseph, his surrogate father, if you will, is off the, off the scene. We think he probably passed away because he may have been much more aged than Mary when they got married. And Jesus is now 33. The average age of a man, back then at least the lifespan, was 54 years old. So if Joseph was married at 30, which probably is pretty close to right because you would have had to, to earn enough money to earn enough, you, you would have had to earn enough money to pay the father of your intended a, a bride price. And that wasn't cheap for somebody like Mary. She was a woman of standing. And so you took a little bit to earn that amount of money, which meant you married somewhere around 30, but you married a 16-year-old because you wanted to make sure that you had as many children as possible along the way. But if the man, the son, now gets to be 30-something, you're above the average lifespan of most men. So we think Joseph probably passed. The scriptures do not say, but that's what we think. But he wasn't there to care for Mary anymore in Jesus' absence. And Jesus seems to be the only one. This is one of the reasons we don't think that Jesus had uh, what we call natural brothers. 
Back the, Hebrew and Greek, neither of them have a word for cousin. Neither of them do. We do, but they don't. And so the son of your uncle was your brother. With me? So when we see James writing the book of James, who is the brother of Jesus, they would not have distinguished be between somebody who came from Mary's womb and somebody who came from Mary's brother's womb. Same thing. Brothers. But the fact that Jesus had nobody to give Mary to at the cross says a lot about the fact that there wasn't a natural brother from Mary to be able to care for Mary. A natural brother of Jesus. Thus, he at the cross says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mama. You are now responsible. Jesus is a good son, not only in life, but in death. He's caring for his mama, making sure that she doesn't have to take out the trash. She doesn't have to cut the grass. She doesn't, <laughs> you with me? He's caring for mama, even as he is in anguish, he's caring for mama. Jesus likes to put relationships together at the cross. There are people who do not have my blood. I don't share their DNA. But he put me together with him at the cross. Jim Critcher, I'm with him at the cross. June and Sarah, I'm with him at the cross. He says, care for these people. Tend to this relationship. Don't let it just, just dissolve. Don't let an offense be that which separates you from that person. Don't let a misunderstanding cause you to think that it's a good idea to go find somebody else. I'm not perfect at this, but I am experienced. And I have relationships with whom, people with whom I have walked for 40 years. And I can tell you, we have given one another more than enough opportunity to say bye. We've hurt one another deeply. But I chose not to dispose of the relationship <laughs> when, <laughs> that's a, when, the, when the water got dirty. I didn't, I didn't get rid of the baby. I chose to drain the water and salvage the relationship because I realized how much God has had to endure with me. He is so patient with me. He has forgiven me so many things. And as a result, my best friends, and I categorize that statement differently than most, I'm not just talking about the people with whom I get along most wonderfully. I'm talking about the people with whom I get along with longevity. My best friends. They have my back even though we don't agree. I have theirs even though we don't agree. We pray for one another regularly. These people, 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, 15 years, I do my best to keep it because he put me with them at the cross. You got to live at the cross, people. You've got to live there. You don't visit the cross. You live at the cross. You've got to hear these words over and over. Who has God put you with? With whom are you responsible outside of your DNA? If you aren't there, it's because of you. If you can't find somebody, if somebody didn't come to your mind, it's because of you. Because you have not heard Christ enough to place you in the spot whereby other people are there. And you don't have to click with them. Oh, you. 
people think you got to get along with people who are like you and appreciate the things you appreciate and like the music you like. No, 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 no. That's only one person on the planet. Maybe one. Maybe one. Everybody else you have to endure and live with. You have to use patience. This is why the fruit of the Spirit is supernatural. It's called the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of humanity. It's stuff that the Spirit gives you to love people. Why? Because they're unlovable. To be kind to people. Why? Because they are unkind. To be patient with people. Why? Because they get on your last nerve. This is supernatural. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of humanity. Jesus puts people together at the cross. Third thing is, <laughs> there are people who are crucified next to Jesus. Two guys, criminals. One of them was blaspheming. The other was saying, shut up. This guy's a real deal. And Jesus was listening to the banter back and forth. If you are the son of God, get yourself and us off this thing. And I said, shut up. We deserve to be here. He does not. And after a moment of contemplation, we don't know how long it took, but we do know this. The man said, Um, Lord, when you go to where you go, would you, I don't know, like, remember me? He didn't have the right prayer. He didn't know what to say. He couldn't say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I, I promise you, I won't do it again. I'm going to repent for, for everything I know which is wrong. And I choose to serve you with all of... He didn't know how to pray any of that. He was a man that probably had not been to church in a really long time. And we don't even have any idea of, as to whether he was a Jew. He may have been a Gentile, which means he's never known anything spiritually. But he knew this guy was different. They had suffered all night together, been beaten. Jesus suffered differently, but they probably had suffered all night together. And he didn't know what to say, but, but he knew he needed to say something in these last moments. Can you, can you like just, uh, how, as a man who did not feel worthy, can you, can you just, can you remember me, please? Oh, Jesus hurt his heart. And this is the beauty about humanity. We don't know how to talk to God well, but God hears our heart. Jesus looked at him and said, today, you and me, we tight. Where I go, you go. You will be with me in paradise today. I, 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 I guess the guy felt better about dying now. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what all that means. All I know is that Jesus saw his heart and answered his prayer. Listen, God is waiting for you to cry out to him with the right kind of attitude, not just the right words. The right kind of heart. And your heart needs to be that which is fully submitted, realizing you are not and you deserve the stuff you're going through. Oh, that is not something humanity wants to hear. We think we are better than the circumstances that face us. We think we don't deserve. We should not have to. Why? I'm a good person. Really? By whose standards? Hitler's? Boy, you put yourself by Hitler, you're pretty good. But what about the standard being Jesus? How good are you then? All of us are sinners. We are deserving of death. 
And I'm grateful that I don't get it every day. Every day I'm grateful, Lord, you are amazing to me. Even if my day is going to be trash today, if nothing goes my way, I want you to know this is one grateful brother. I am not being judged for my sins because you took my punishment. Wow, thank you, thank you, thank you. Whenever I pass, I get to be with you in paradise. Thank you. Next, those are the three relational things going this way on the cross. Human beings, Jesus caring about humanity so much that he's talking to them and about them while he is in pain, trying to bring relief to everybody else. Wow. And then he finally realizes his own humanity is crying out. He says, I thirst. At the beginning of his crucifixion, they had tried to give him some wine mixed with gall, bitter wine, and he didn't take it. Because he realized, I don't, to take anything that brings relief to my suffering is going to diminish the benefit of what it means to suffer for humanity. So I'm not going to take it. But here, he does take it. Not because he needs relief, but because he's got to talk. He's got three more statements to make. Three more. And having lost so much blood and so much sweat, he probably can't talk. And he needs something to make sure that he utters these last three statements. He says, I thirst. And I'm not quite sure whether I thirst can be confined simply to the fact that his body was aching. I think there's something in there that says, I thirst for the presence of my father. I realize what I'm about to go through. The sin of the world is being dumped on me and he is about to reject me. Ah, I can't stand that. I thirst. I realize what's about to happen here. He takes the gall and then he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't even get this one, but I know the pain through which he had to go. This is probably what he was speaking of when he spoke in the Garden of Gethsemane on that, uh, the night before as he was praying, saying, Father, let this cup pass, please. Let this cup pass. Not my will, but your will, but I, do, I really don't want to go through this. And I don't think it had anything to do with the pain through which he was going, though that may have been a factor. I think primarily it was, I realized that the sin of the world is going to do something unalterable to our relationship. And I don't want that to happen. Oh, that we would have the same kind of conviction that says, Lord, I don't want anything to come between me and you. Let not sin enter into my world. Help me to be kept away from temptation. This is one of the prayers that Jesus teaches the disciples to pray. Don't, don't let me go that way. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from every form of evil. Jesus says, sweat great drops of blood that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is how much stress his body was under. I don't know. I've tried to put myself in that position so many times in my spiritual mind. And I don't think, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I'm right enough to be able to do what he did. 
I may have been able to go through it some, but I think I would have had some conditions, you know. Two weeks ago, I talked about Isaiah chapter 50 where it says that he, he gave his back to his persecutors and then he gave his face and they pulled out his beard. I may have been able to say something to the effect of, Father, let this cup pass. Not my will, but your will. But can I at least shave? That probably wouldn't have come out of my mind. It would have at least come to my mind, out of my mouth. Can I at least shave? Because, like, I don't even know what it's going to be like when they pull my beard out. That's going to be so painful, Lord. I probably would have had that conversation. I'll go, I'll do it. But, but see, there was a passage that needed to be fulfilled. His beard needed to be pulled out. It was part of the redemptive benefit. What a night. Father, why have you forsaken me? Something about the sin of the world being placed on Christ and what he accepted caused there to be a separation between the Father and the Son. I don't know what that's like cos cosmology-wise, what it's like in the Godhead, but I know that his physical presence was no longer in tune with the spiritual Father. Because he now took on the sin of the world. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, he became sin for us. He didn't just forgive us of our sin. He became sin for us. Second Corinthians 5. That we might become his righteousness. So the earth grew dark. Then he said, it is finished. What? I have done everything I'm supposed to do. There is not one thing said about me in the Old Testament that I did not do right. I completed my course perfectly. I obeyed all the law. I even obeyed the stuff about keeping my beard. I did everything according to the word. I'm done now. It's over. It's finished. Somebody finally did what Adam failed to do. He blew it and could not obey. I obeyed at every point of my life, every breath. I obeyed. It's done. At which he then said lastly, the seventh, into your hands. I commit my spirit. It says the earth quaked then. Sky grew dark. Folks who had been in graves came out. It was a day unlike any day ever. But he was able to say with confidence because of the righteousness of his life I know exactly where I'm going which gives us the confidence to say if we are in him not because of what we do not because of how good we are because we aren't if we are in him 
than where he goes. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit every day. Every day. There'll be a time in the next 50 or 60 years where I will say that and it will be my last breath. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate that one amen. 50, 60 years, there should have been a lot more. It, did, it, it didn't flow. You, it, it, I thought there would be a natural, yay! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know it's a stretch. I am 60, so you know, 50, that's 110, 20 years. Um, but I feel real good, y'all. I'm just letting you know. I feel like 25. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Oh, thank you, my brother. There's another one down there. I got a lot of good church members in here today. But I want you to have the confidence that whenever it's time for you to go, you're able to say, here I come, Daddy. Here I come. And it has nothing to do with your good works. It has everything to do with you trusting in the good works he has done for you. What Jesus has done and how he died, how he took your whooping, and how he lived the life you should have lived. What it means is you giving your heart to him. Everything you are, all that you are not, all your hopes and dreams, your past, your present, your future. You say, Lord, I am yours. Do with me as you see fit. And when you do that, there is a confidence that comes on the inside of your soul that has nothing to do with who you are or what you have done. It has everything to do with in whom you have found your life. And my life is hidden with Christ in God. So that I'm able to say with confidence, I know exactly when I'm, where I'm going when I breathe my last. It has nothing to do with Brad. It has everything to do with what he's done for me. If you don't feel like you've got that confidence tonight, it's a great time to repent and find this God who loves you so. Pray with me. If you find yourself in a place where you don't know God, or maybe you've made a decision in the past, but your life doesn't look anything like what a believer's ought to be, and you want to make a change tonight, raise your hand high. I'd like to pray for you. Anybody at all? I see that hand. Bless you. Once it's up, you can put it down. Anybody else? Ushers, you're going to have to help me. The lights are really bright tonight. Thank you. Bless you. I see that hand. see that hand. All right, you who raised your hand, pray with me. And if you're online, we've got some prompts there in the chat whereby you can do the same. Uh, either it's a QR code or a little spot at the bottom of the chat that says, I raised my hand. Check that. If it's a QR code, go ahead and let your phone t uh, take a picture of that. Pray with me. Say, Father in heaven, forgive me. I am sorry for the way I've lived. I choose to turn away from everything I know to be sin and to follow you with all of my heart. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for giving me the privilege. I'm calling Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name.